0: Well, we have, uh, we have concluded our study in the book of Judges, and it ended with an appendix, a five-chapter appendix. Uh, the appendix summarized the entire period. Uh, the entire period of the Judges is uh, 300 years, 335, 340 years, so a long time. And the appendix is supposed to give us a picture of what everyday life was like. It was a time of religious apostasy and a time of social disorder. And all of those things can largely be attributed to Israel's failure to remove the Canaanites. Those things happened because they didn't do that, for the most part. The first half of the appendix had to do with religious apostasy. And you'll remember that the tribe of Dan... Uh, left their place of inheritance and they decided to move north to greener pasture. They moved well beyond the Sea of Galilee um, and established a city there named Dan. And on the way they took Micah's idols and they took his priest. And they went up there and they established a cult site that was a, a filthy mixture of paying respects to God in their own minds. Uh, but also practicing these pagan fertility rituals. And so this is what was going on in Israel, and all of the other tribes were going there to participate courtesy of the tribe of Dan. Now, we might be tempted to think that something like that does not happen in the church today, but we shouldn't. There are many houses of worship all across our country who have turned apostate. It's easy to see when there's the rainbow flag draped in front of the church and the, the pastor is a, is a female lesbian. You know, it's easy for us to see that things have went awry there. But sometimes we have to look a little bit deeper. And uh, just to go smaller and just to look at it on a more individual basis, you know, you just have to look at, at people today who claim to be Christians. And they have this wild mixture of beliefs if you just delve into it a little bit and just start talking to other people who claim to be believers, and you'll find out that there's just a mess. I'm at work with people who claim to be Christians and all something will come up about something somebody else believes and they'll be shocked. And it's because they haven't taken the time to talk to anybody about their faith because theirs isn't very strong either. Uh, they're, they're secret. They're undercover Christians, if they really are. A lot of the folks that I know. Maybe you feel the same way. It's not uncommon at all to find Christians who believe in evolution to some degree. But evolution is contrary to Scripture. Evolution is atheism. That everything is here by chance. There is no designer. And, but the Bible teaches us that there is a God who created all things. He is the master designer. And we're actually going to give an account to Him. That's completely contrary to evolution. Evolution teaches that things progress upwardly through death, which is the opposite of what we really see happening. It's a lie. It's not even true. The Bible tells us that sin did not enter into the creation until Adam and Eve sinned. But evolution teaches that all of these processes occur over millions and millions and billions of years through death. That's not what the Bible teaches. But it's not uncommon at all to find believers trying to merge what they believe about God with evolution. It's an example of how our culture gets into our skin. It gets into our thought process. It invades our heart. And the next thing you know, we are apostate. Our faith is apostate. All you have to do is is think about how Christians today will talk about things that come from Eastern philosophy, Eastern religion, Reincarnation, karma is a is a common staple word in the English language. Everybody uses it. What is karma? Do you know? You have to keep your guards up. Just you hear Christians talk about ghosts and what happens to people when they die and how loved ones are coming back in this way or that to encourage I me. Mean, some people, some some people claim Christians think that that birds are are people that have came back to give them some kind of encouraging word. A bird. Christians reading their horoscope. You know, uh, that's astrology. It's divination. In the Bible, it's called an abomination to God. And by the way, while you're reading that horoscope, who is it that you think is giving you this bright future foretelling? Who is that? Who's telling you something about your future? Because it's, it's definitely not God. Um, Christians today um, pick and choose what they believe from the Bible. They don't want to be underneath the authority of Scripture. And so if they hear something from God or from the Bible, they throw it out. They'll keep the rest, but they throw it out. It's easy to see. A friend of mine at work just the other day was saying that somebody was as old as Methuselah. And then said, Craig, you'll back me up on that, right? He was old, wasn't he? I said, yeah, he was old. And he said, 969 years, right? I said, yes. He said, you're impressed with me now, aren't you? Because he knew that. And I said, well, do you believe it's true? And he goes, uh, no. You see, Adam and Eve is a, is a fable, a myth. It's in the Bible to teach us something. But that's the farthest thing from Scripture. The Bible tells us that sin entered the human race Through Adam and Eve. Through Adam. It's passed on. We inherit the sin nature through Adam. You know, there's all over the world, there's, you know, watered down references to a global flood. And so... Most people will agree that there was some type of a flood in the past, but very few people, even Christians, if you if you get into their business, if you ask a believer what they really believe, if they're going to be honest with you. Some of them will tell you that there's no way that Noah built an ark and God made two of every kind of animal go into the ark and it flooded the whole world and everybody but eight people died. They don't believe it. And even worse, I think, is that many people today that are Christians don't believe that uh, most people are going to to die without Christ or, or face eternal punishment. They're more universalist. They think that most people are going to heaven. And only the really bad people aren't. Just ask. People that tell you that they're a believer, ask them. And you'll find out that there's this wild spectrum of thoughts and beliefs and philosophies that have all merged in with what they know or believe about God. In the second half of the appendix, it talked about social disorder. And we were introduced to the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin, and we saw how the tribe of Benjamin was almost completely wiped out, almost existed no longer. Why? It was because they refused to hold some of their people accountable. You remember what happened? Those perverted men in Gibeah, Gibeah, what they did? And when the other tribes came to Benjamin, they said, turn them over. They They need to answer for what they've done. And they said no. They refused. And they actually amassed their army to fight their other brothers. You might be thinking, well, that kind of stuff doesn't happen within the church today, but it does. It certainly happens in our society. Just think about the way a parent sometimes will brussle up when a bad note from the teacher comes home about little Johnny and how defensive they get. Well, that teacher, how dare her! She doesn't know. She doesn't know what my son's going through. She doesn't know what the other kids are like and what they've been doing. And she doesn't know what my kids have been going through at home. And just all these excuses. In my line of work, I run into juveniles who commit really bad crimes, and their parents defend them to the nth degree. Sometimes they don't, but most of the time they are very defensive of their kids. I I remember this one kid who was going around robbing everybody. Actually, I can think of several where this is true, but one in particular, he was robbing everybody with a gun. And we ended up doing a search warrant on his apartment. I was going through his bedroom. And collecting all of the things that he'd been stealing from people. And I came across his report card. And he was making an F in every class. Which was no surprise to me. But when I was leaving, his mother was in the living room. And she was giving me the blues about how wrong I was. How good her son was. And she even told me how great of a student he was. And I just had enough. I said, have you... I said I just went through I just saw your son's report card. He's failing every class. He's not a good student. And I said, "Have you looked at your son's social media on Facebook? There are multiple pictures of him holding a gun." Well, she did not respond to that with humility. Instead, she went on to complain on me and to try her best to make trouble for me. You may see parents who their children decide that they want to practice some type of homosexual lifestyle. And the parents will actually applaud it or defend them. You know, parents, if your kids are doing something wrong, you're not doing them any favors by telling them something's right that's wrong. You're not helping them. We still love our kids. You'll do everything in your power to help them and to get through what they're going through. But you never want to tell them that something's wrong is right. Parents have to hold the standard. You know, in our country, uh, the law is not applied equally to everybody. All you have to do is look at the way the, the radical Black Lives Matter protesters were treated versus the way the radical Trump supporters were treated that broke into the Capitol building. Indictments and indictments and indictments and amnesty. The law was not treated equally. The black community has been saying that this is what's been going on in our country for a long time. And unfortunately, it's true. Last couple of weekends ago at the 4th of July celebration down on the river at the banks, there was five people shot, two of them died. And the whole city is upset about it, and rightly so. But all of our leaders, what have they been doing? They've been talking about what can we do to make sure this never happens again. And so they begin to ask questions about the police. What did the police do or not do? What should the police be doing? What about the curfew? What about the summer programs for you know, underprivileged children? Nobody's talking about the family. The shooting in a park is the end result of a lot of other things. The whole. The and just recently they're talking about, you know, going federal when people get caught with a gun to try to turn things around. But nobody's talking about the real problems. You know, our government and the entertainment industry and our educational system works overtime on destroying the family. It's dishonest. And so this is what's happening here. When when they came to the tribe of Benjamin, they should have turned them over. Now, in the book of Judges here, uh, which one's up there? Is that the Judges? Yeah. In the book of Judges, we watched a cycle repeat itself. Uh, There was peace in the land, and then the people would start to sin. And to bring them back, God would raise up an oppressor and make them miserable. And sometimes this went on for a long time. Sometimes, you know, a ridiculously amount of years, but the people would finally cry out to God. He would raise up someone to deliver them. And then there would be peace again. And this cycle repeated itself. And so we watched it as we moved through these major judges. Um, Othniel was a judge uh, contemporary with all of the events that were transpiring during the appendix that we've just been describing. And remember, he was dealing with a king from Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, of all places, that's clear on the other side of the Fertile Crescent. But their fingers were reaching out clear over to Israel. And after Othniel came Ehud. And Ehud is from the tribe of Benjamin. And we remember he killed the uh, Eglon, the king of Moab. But by this point, the tribe of Benjamin was decimated. There was no army. And that's why they had to call on Ephraim. And then there was Jabin, the king of the Canaanites that Deborah and Barak had to deal with in the valley of Jezreel. And they were followed by Gideon but when Gideon was the judge, it was the Midianites. And between Gideon and Jephthah, we, we saw what happened with one of Gideon's sons, Abimelech. Abimelech was not a judge. He was a bad guy. But Jephthah was dealing with the Ammonites. And the Ammonites were people from the, on the east side of the Jordan River. And they were coming in, even crossing the Jordan, and causing trouble in Ephraim and Judah and Benjamin. And then finally... Samson. And he, of course, was dealing with the Philistines. And this is how the book closes. But there are two more judges that are not in the book of Judges. And so that's why I want to move into the book of 1 Samuel just a little bit to look at these final two judges. And uh, they're contemporary with Samson. Now down there at the bottom, it's Eli and Samuel. Eli is the high priest. He lives in Shiloh. In the, in the land of the Ephraimites, in Ephraim. That's where the tabernacle is. And then Samuel. The book of First Samuel opens up with this introduction to these two last judges. And it uh, shows us the transition of Israel coming, coming underneath one king. And that's very significant because God is continuing to teach His children, but He's teaching them in a new way. He's showing them the inadequacy of their kings. They're inadequate, all of them. And their inadequacy is designed as as an object lesson by God to teach His kids to yearn for the true Messiah. So this is what begins to happen in the opening chapters of 1 Samuel. So as we turn to chapter 1 in the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to meet a man and a woman who are married and they fear God. And they're actually living during the period of the judges. This is going to be towards the end. Contemporary with Samson and the Philistines. But this married couple are not experiencing peace. They're going to church. They're trying to live for God, but they are not experiencing peace. And so we will see them try to resolve their difficulties and problems on their own, in their own strength. They try to do what makes sense to them, what seems to be the right thing to do. And they draw from people around them they draw from the patriarchs who followed some of, the, some of the similar mistakes uh, from their culture to address their problem. And we find out that it, it turns into a mess and it causes them all kinds of problems because they try to do things in their, own, in their own strength. And so we're going to see a problem that's created. But then we will also see them turn to God and see how he brings them true peace. We're going to see all that here in just chapter one. It is a picture of a Christian who has an undesirable situation, whatever it is, and you try to wiggle out from underneath it and solve the problem on your own, and it causes problems. It causes more problems. It's the picture of a Christian who calls out to God in the middle of their mess, and God answers their problem, he answers their call. And the believer actually experiences peace. The one thing that he's been trying to find the whole time. And so what is the lesson? The lesson is, is finding peace in the middle of a difficult situation. Finding peace when things are not going well. Whatever they are. Now when we talk about finding peace, there's a when you try to get away from it all and you want to get some peace and quiet. That's not what we're talking about. Um, you know the verse of Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's not really what we're talking about either. That's talking about two warring parties being reconciled. Two people have a disagreement and there's, now there's peace between them. And so there's peace with God through Jesus Christ. It's when we receive Him as our Savior and Jesus washes us clean of our sins. His righteousness is imputed to us. And we're declared righteous because of Christ's righteousness before God. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're declared righteous before God. And so there's peace. It's not really talking about that either. Because all of us who, have, who receive Christ have that kind of peace. Peace. All of us are in good standing with God now because of Jesus, who we've received. It's talking about the peace that surpasses all understanding. It's the peace that transcends our problems. A Christian who has peace in the middle of difficulty. That's what it's talking about. That's what we want. Philippians 4:7 says: the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's what all of us want, and that's what we'll actually see happen in our passage this morning. So if you have a Bible open, I encourage you to turn to first Samuel just chapter one. And we'll begin reading in verse one. It says there was a man from Ramathaim Zophim. And if you look in verse I think nineteen, he gives us the shorter version of that word um, maybe it's 21. Yeah, verse 19. So whatever that place is, you can go short. You can just say Ramah for short. So he, he later calls it Rama. So there was a man from Ramah, and it is in the hill country of Ephraim. And so this is about 15 miles north of Jerusalem. Now this man's name was Elkanah, son of Jerohom, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephraimite. Now he's going to have a son named Samuel. And Samuel is going to serve as a priest. So how can Samuel serve as a priest if he's from Ephraim? Only the tribe of Levi are the priests. We have to go to 1 Chronicles chapter 6 to find out that he is actually from the tribe of Levi. He just lives... Ephraim Now this man had two wives there's your problem the first name Hannah and the second is Penina Penina had children but Hannah was childless she was barren so this explains why there's a second wife and we saw this happen with concubines and more than one marriage uh, where you would marry a woman to have children that's what you call Trying to solve your own problem in your own strength. Doing what makes right in your own eyes. What makes sense? You know, if you've got an inheritance, if you've got this land and it's supposed to be passed down to generations and your wife is childless, what are you supposed to do? The only thing you can do is get another wife, have kids with her. That was the thought process and it was a big mistake. Well, in verse three, this man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of Hosts at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. And so Shiloh is 15 miles north of uh, Ramah. So about 30 miles north of Jerusalem is Shiloh, and it's in the it's in the country of Ephraim the tribe the tribal area region of ephraim this is where the tabernacle was it's not a temple it's a tabernacle it's temporary it could be packed up and moved and this is where these people were going to every year because in the mosaic law it teaches that every adult hebrew male is to travel to the temple or the tabernacle for the three main festivals for passover pentecost and the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. And so they were following the law. And then we find out that there's this guy named Eli, and he's got two boys, and they're serving as priests. We're going to find out that Eli is the high priest. We're even going to find out that Eli is a judge. Verse four, whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Whenever she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way every year. Hannah wept and would not eat. So it's clear here that Elkanah loved Hannah very much. And even though she wasn't having a baby, he wanted to make sure she knew that he, he loved her. And so he was doing his extensions. And So this is a picture of the entire family going to Jerusalem to the temple at Passover. It's the picture of of the entire family going to Shiloh to the tabernacle for these festivals. So they were living for God. But along the way, they'd made a mistake. He'd married another woman. And neither one of these women were happy. They were both upset. Penina was was jealous, and she was trying to make the other woman miserable. And Hannah was... In bad straits, wasn't she? Neither one of them were happy. If mama's not happy, nobody's happy. <laughs> happy wife, happy life. So you can see that they had made a big, deci- a big mistake. And she, she taunted her severely and just tried to provoke her. But two different times in verse 5 and 6, it tells us that it was God who closed her womb. That means that it's God who opens the womb. But God had closed her womb. And so this was of no fault of Hannah. Hannah had no control over this. There was no fertility clinic. There's blessings for for childbirth in the the Old Testament. And so they would turn it into a curse. God was cursing you if you didn't have kids. God wasn't cursing Hannah. Hannah that her womb was closed. God was trying to teach them. And instead of learning the lessons the right way, they went out from underneath God's thumb, and they tried to solve their problem on their own, and it just caused problems. Many times our problems are self-induced. Many of the things that I end up having to deal with are messes that I have to clean up from stupid things that I've done self-inflicted problems, but this was not one of them. And so when we find ourselves in some self-inflicted problem, the proper remedy, what do you do when you've done something wrong and you've messed it all up? What's the remedy? It's to be honest about what you did to repent and to have humility, yield your heart to God, apologize, try to make it right. Whatever you have to do, that's what you do when you've made a mistake what I have to do. When things are a God-appointed difficulty, the remedy is not much different. As long as we have a repentant heart and we have humility, we will be able to trust God in the midst of our difficulty. And that's the key. When we can trust God in the middle of our problems, that's when we actually experience true peace. We also notice that uh, this woman was giving her a hard time provoking her, and this was going on year after year, provoking her, trying to get her to respond, but there is no indication in our Bible, there is no indication that Hannah retaliated, or that she was trying to make everybody miserable. We can see that it really hurt her feelings, she cried, she couldn't eat. Hannah is a very good example for us. Verse 7, there at the end it says she wept and she would not eat. And her husband, he, he says, Why are you crying? Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Well the answer is no, because the peace that we need is from God. Nobody can fill that void. Every once in a while I get the idea of buying a jeep, because I like those jeeps. That jeep ain't gonna make me happy. A boat? More money? Hair. <laughs> you know. it's just not gonna you know you gonna find peace, you know, in things. And you can't find the kind of peace that we need in each other. But believers have Christ inside of us. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and so. We can feed off each other, you know, draw a lot of strength from God from each other. That's why it's so important for us to go to church. It's the best place to be. So he says, am I not better than, to you than ten sons? Well, this is going to cause Hannah to throw herself at the mercies of God. Verse 9, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's tabernacle. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and she wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of hosts, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me. And give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. This is that Nazarite vow. It's in Numbers chapter 6. And while she was praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her lips. Hannah was speaking to herself, and although her lips were were moving, her voice could not be heard. So Eli thought she was drunk, and he scolded her. How long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depths of my anguish and resentment. Then they exchange blessings. Eli responds by saying, go in in peace and may the God of Israel grant the petition you've requested from him. And then she said to him, may your servant find favor with you. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer appeared downcast. Look at the change. She went on her way, she ate, and she no longer appeared downcast. We have to notice the change Before, Hannah and her husband did not have peace. They wanted children and they couldn't have them and was making them miserable. And so they went out from underneath God's standards, out from underneath the umbrella of protection to try to solve their problem. They got ahead of God and they didn't need to violate the sanctity of their marriage. They just needed to trust God. We see here, Hannah has turned the matter over to him. And the minute she did that, she had peace. And she did that even without the result. It's important for us to remember that sometimes we we are going to die of cancer. Sometimes someone in our family is going to not recover. You know, uh, sometimes marriages don't work. Sometimes things happen. It's not always the, the, the bright, happy ending at the story. There's a very happy ending in this story. But there's not always a happy ending. But you have to remember that God is in it with us for the long game. You know, for us, everything has to happen now in our life. You know, it's all got to have a, a pretty bow on it by the at some point in our life. But God's not like that. He, he's He's looking ahead. You know, he, He's he, we're going to be His kids forever. And so it's more important for us to learn the lessons now. Because later, there's going to be reward. And it's all going to make sense later. The things that don't make sense now. So we don't want to be fooled into thinking that if we turn it over to Him, we're going to have peace. And that peace can be defined by with us getting what we want. Because that may not be the case. But the, the truth is, is that whether you're the Apostle Paul, and you have been whipped, and you are in prison, you can still have the peace that surpasses all understanding. This is what God wants us to, to understand and to, and to strive for. Well, so after this happened, in verse 19, the next morning, the husband and wife got up early to bow and to worship the Lord. So they went together. Afterwards, they returned home to Ramah. Then Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah conceived and she gave birth to a son. and She named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. And when Elkanah and all his household went up to make the annual sacrifice and his vow offering to the Lord, Hannah did not go. She explained to her husband, After the child is weaned, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence and to stay there permanently. And her husband Elkanah replied, Do what you think is best and stay here until you've weaned him. May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him with her to Shiloh, as well as a three-year-old bull, two and one half gallons of flour and a jar of wine. Though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the boy to Eli, mom and dad. Please, my Lord, she said, as sure as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave me what I asked him for, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. And then he bowed and worshipped the Lord there. As we read on, we're going to find out that Mom would go back to the tabernacle and visit her son, bring him things, bring bring him... New clothes. She had a relationship with her son, but he lived there. I'm going to read the beginning of chapter two, but before I do, look at verse twenty-one of chapter two. The Lord paid attention to Hannah's need, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons, and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. This is Hannah's song, it's her prayer, beginning in verse 1. My heart rejoices in the Lord, my horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord, there is no one beside you, and there is no rock like our God. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. The bows of the warrior are broken but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food but those who are starving hunger no more. The barren woman gives birth to seven but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some to Sheol and he raises others up. That's the resurrection. The Lord brings poverty and he gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the garbage pile. He seats them with noble men and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world on them. He guards the steps of his faithful ones but the wicked are silenced in darkness for a man does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. Let's pray.